From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, canaloplasty. A lot of people perceive this as a very challenging operation that they, they, they can't do, and, and the fact is that it's, uh, it's quite doable. First this. As Seen From Here is committed to medical education devoid of hidden industry bias. Dr. Lewis is a consultant to iScience, the manufacturer of the cannula discussed in this podcast. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. One can debate the benefits of the French healthcare system, but there's one indisputable fact. You don't want to have been a Frenchman with a headache in the 7th millennium BCE. Of 120 skulls recovered from this period, 40 had evidence of trepanation. Trepanation? That's the boring of holes through the skull to alleviate the pressure of a headache. How barbaric! How absolutely primitive! Medicine has advanced immeasurably in the intervening 8,500 years. Why, now, to relieve excess pressure in the eye, we bore small holes through the eye wall. How barbaric! Is there no alternative? Rick Lewis has one, and I'm happy to have him as my guest today. In glaucoma management generally, what is the threshold for advocating intraocular surgery? The issues for glaucoma surgery have certainly changed. In the past, uh, although we have recognized the need to get pressures low and uh, establishing target pressures and keeping them uh, low teens or so, uh, the problem, of course, has always been the uh, complications of the conventional glaucoma approaches. The, 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 The side effects and complications were so great that it discouraged anybody from ever wanting to either do surgery or have surgery. And, you know, of course, that changed a little bit with laser trabeculoplasty, and it's changed a little bit more with non-penetrating. Uh, and as we're going to get into in this discussion, some of the newer procedures and devices have, I think, are going to lower the threshold even more. So I think we're going to reach a point that um, I think surgery will rise earlier in the uh, therapeutic options, much earlier. Trabeculectomy is the established intraocular surgical therapy. What are its downsides? And are these downsides the reason for our high threshold for recommending surgery? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the, uh, the problem with trabeculectomy is, although it's a fairly straightforward procedure, uh, it's very dependent on, on uh, the function of the conjunctiva for its uh, uh, success. And it's a tissue that's very difficult to really control. You know, we, we either get fibrosis and scarring uh, or we get, uh, you know, no scarring and uh, basically ischemic tissue that leaks. Um, and so it would be, we've always been striving for some way to avoid that where we, either we use conventional outflow system like the canal and collector system uh, or some device, 
that, that gets it away from a dependency on the conjunctiva to really regulate flow. Yeah, I mean, the, certainly this has come to a head in the past few years uh, with the, I think, landmark studies of the, the TRAB versus TUBE studies that looked at, um, uh, you know, in a very detailed prospective analysis, randomizing patients to either trabeculectomy uh, or a barvelt implant in a multi-centered, mostly academic study, uh, the complication rate was astoundingly high for trabeculectomy and, and reason fairly high for, for the tubes. So if there's ever been, you know, an incentive to find alternative ways, it's, it's sort of now. On the positive side, those studies also show that when successful, they can control the pressures. Um, I think the latest study is, I believe, three years now. Um, and, you know, the, the pressure on the success of the group who was successful had nice pressures in the low teens. So that's, that's the good news. The bad news is that the complication rate was really very, very unacceptable. What surgical alternatives to trabeculectomy have been proposed? Well, I think that you know, there's essentially uh, three categories of uh, drainage systems. Uh, well, I guess four. Uh, um, you know, one is to go extra sclera, like we do with uh, trabeculectomies and uh, drainage devices. Uh, a second way is um, the non-penetrating approach using the canal collector system uh, that's been popularized by viscocanalostomy and um, the aquaflow and various things. Uh, the third is going into supracoidal space. Uh, we used to use, do cyclodialysis procedures, and then it, it was abandoned because it was unpredictable. But now, with new devices, it's coming back. And then the fourth approach is um, decreasing or, you know, uh, markedly changing aqueous production. So those are the four, only four ways we have of, of lowering pressure. Within each of those four, of course, there's various ways of getting there, uh, but those are the four major categories. We're going to be talking about canaloplasty. Can you describe it and maybe walk me through a procedure? Okay. Um, you know, canaloplasty is a uh, non-penetrating surgery um, that uh, attempts, attempts to uh, visco-dilate the, the entire 360 degrees of the canal of Schlem and also provide a tensioning element in that canal to enhance outflow, to sort of basically to tension the meshwork and stretch it to allow greater outflow. So you don't depend on a bleb or any type of external outflow system. It utilizes the physiologic system itself. In, the, in, in performing the procedure, what is done is uh, a standard uh, conjunctival flap is created, a forming space flap is made, and then a superficial scleral flap is dissected uh, with a 4-millimeter base, not unlike a trabeculectomy flap, which is its half-thickness scleral flap. And then underneath that, you take a deep scleral flap and dissect it until you identify the canal. So the deep scleral flap has a plane of incision uh, very just superficial to the ciliary body, and that leads you right into the canal. Once you've identified the canal and you extend this deeper flap into the cornea, so you've got a sort of a decimase window, you then use the uh, eye science catheter, which has a um, 250 micron tip, and you thread the catheter throughout the circumference of the canal. So it comes out, it puts in come in one way and it comes out the other. Uh, once it exits the other side of the canal system, uh, we attach a 10 uh, proline or 9 proline either way, uh, to the tip of that catheter. Uh, and then we gently withdraw the catheter 
and as we're withdrawing, we inject visco, um, viscoelastic helon GV to dilate, so it dilates the canal. And that, um, so then we withdraw the catheter, but we leave, that leaves the suture in place, the proline suture, which we, uh, we tie off tightly, and that provides the tensioning element, and uh, then we're done. So then we excise the inner flap of that dissection, we tie down tightly the superficial flap so we don't get a bleb or any wound leakage. And uh, then we bring the conjunctiva forward and the surgery is completed. Uh, it's about a 30-minute procedure. And um, you see uh, you know, no shallowing of the anterior chamber. Uh, there's no excessive wound leakage. Um, and uh, it avoids a lot of the postoperative complications we get with full thickness or even partial thickness surgery. And the superficial flap sits on the knot of the proline? Correct. Yes. The, that proline suture is left in the canal, uh, tied tightly. And again, that adds, actually acts as a tensioning element for the meshwork. The inner flap is excised. The superficial flap is tightly closed. So that's, uh, that leaves you with a, what we call a scleral lake underneath this flap that helps to uh, uh, discharge fluid. Rick, what was the purpose of your study? What we did, uh, we've done a couple of studies. There's one, the one that I think you're referring to is the one-year analysis. That We have a, a two-year analysis being published in this month's edition of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. And um, in both of those, uh, there it's a prospective study. It's not randomized. The uh, patients were included who had open-arm glaucoma and successful uh, canal plastic surgery. So we... we um, uh, included patients who had successful canaloplasty surgery with an open angle, amplitude angle glaucoma, in whom uh, you know there was no bleb, so we couldn't, they couldn't we couldn't say the pressure reduction was due to a bleb formation, and looked at the uh, short, long term, short and long term complications as well as the long term efficacy. Can I get you to describe the design of your study? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, prospective study uh, patients with open angle glaucoma, which included. Uh, pseudoexfoliation and pigmentary dispersion syndrome, but patients with uh, any of the secondary glaucomas or angle closure were excluded. They, um, you know, had to be followed for a year out, and they were, it was a multi-centered study conducted uh, in North America uh, and Europe. There was uh, surgeons in Germany and, and Great Britain involved in this. You used UBM in this study. How was UBM used in the context of this study? Well, in the, in the development of the technology, uh, the company iScience recognized this, this failure of glaucoma surgery, conventional glaucoma surgery, and they um, felt that the first step was uh, to develop an imaging system to identify the canal. They looked at this. A lot, of, a lot of the guys in this company were formerly with cardiac uh, catheter companies, and they recognized in cardiology that the first goal was to image the obstruction. So in, in glaucoma, the way they wanted to image it was developing a, a very modified uh, UBM that really focused in on the canal. So you could actually image the canal preoperatively. Uh, and it, what it did in our early studies is showed that it was either narrow or closed in open-end glaucoma. That really, you, couldn't, you couldn't see it in a, in a patient with glaucoma. So it was useful to diagnose that kind of patient. It was also useful in surgery in the beginning uh, to ensure that you had visco dilated the canal properly and that you where your suture was. So 
uh, it was it was very interesting uh, and enlightening for those of us in the early phase of the study to see how narrow and closed the canal was. Uh, later on, it, it, during the course of the study, it was valuable because we we realized that patients had greater success when we had tensioned the meshwork tightly. Um, in other words, if we had when we tied that proline suture, if we did it correctly, we had some uh, distension of the canal into the interchamber. You could actually see it on ultrasound. And those with greater distension had greater pressure lowering. And in other words, those with, with less suture tension had less distension and less pressure lowering. How is success defined in this study? Um, you know, we looked at it um, in various ways, but uh, we did try to compare it to other glaucoma studies, including AGES, where we categorized it by um, qualified and unqualified success so that patients who had uh, uh, unqualified success might have required medications to maintain pressures below 18. Patients with unqualified success did not require any additional medications. Uh, And those with a qualified success had surgery plus post-operative medications to maintain pressure at a level of 18 or less. What were your findings? You know, the baseline pressures uh, was approximately 24 millimeters of mercury. And uh, then we looked at intraocular pressure at three months, six months, and 12 months. Actually, in the two-year study, we extended out to 18 and 24 months. So I'm going to talk about the two-year data. Uh, And what we showed was the pressure. We looked at pressure and we looked at the number of medications preoperatively compared to each of those intervals postoperatively. Again, the average pressure dropped from about 24 millimeters plus to almost two medications, and it dropped down to 15.4 at 12 months uh, with 0.4 medications. So it's about a 40% drop. Uh, and a significant drop in the number of medications necessary. Rick, what adverse events were observed? You do have, in the early going, you, you, um, sort of micro-hyphemas were, were common. You'd see, if you looked with gonio, you'd see some blood in the canal. Uh, you might actually see frank hyphema, where you got a little uh, a millimeter or so of bleeding in the anterior chamber, a small percentage of patients, which which tended to go away within within you know, within a week. Uh, the other complications, uh, about uh, 8% of patients had an early elevated intraocular pressure, presumably from the retained viscoelastic in the eye. We had 4% of patients who at two years had developed a, a small bleb, a sort of a diffuse bleb. We had uh, late elevated pressure beyond three months in 2.4% of patients. Uh, we had a decimase membrane detachment in 1.6%. Um, we had... Um, one patient who actually developed on hypotony, probably a wound leak of some sort. So the big complication was either pressure elevation or uh, blood in the in the um, anterior chamber. But in all cases, the bleeding was something that was short-lived. None of them had blood at a month out. That's correct, yeah. Now, the way that you describe things from an anatomical standpoint is very clear, but were there eyes that intraoperatively just didn't lend themselves to catheterization? Yeah, there definitely was, and I think that uh, you know, there's patients who'd had previous glaucoma surgery who uh, had scarring in the uh, canal that you couldn't do it on. Uh, there are patients who had argon laser trabeculoplasty in, in whom developed uh, fibrosis of the meshwork and canal that it was difficult to pass the catheter through. Um, 
But um, after you know you've gone through the learning curve, uh, which is probably you know 15 case, 10 to 15 cases, it becomes pretty obvious. It's not a, not as not as difficult a procedure as it might appear when, when first uh, hearing of this thing. Rick, how do you think that the surgery works? Well, you know, uh, we ha- we've done some early dye studies where we've injected dye as we've uh, passed the catheter, and we can see um, the dye getting out into the collector system uh, 360 degrees. So we can, we, I think we can assume that because our ultrasound images showed that the canal was collapsed and constricted, therefore the whole entire distal outflow system was probably not getting any flow in many patients with glaucoma, and that by viscodilating the canal and then sort of reactivating the whole collector system that we're restoring aqueous flow again. Now, do, we don't have out long-term studies to prove that that's why it continues to work, um, which would be wonderful, and certainly that's what they do in cardiology is you get another angiogram. It's, it's difficult to do that, as you know, in ophthalmology, but it would be, it would be great if we could do another dye study to validate that we do get 360 degrees of circumferential flow uh, a year or two years or three years out. And that would be, you know, something that uh, perhaps we could do with cataract surgery later on, but we don't have it right now. Now, in terms of the intraocular pressure reduction that you observed and the adverse events that you observed, how do your data compare with typical study data from trabeculectomies? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that because I've actually conducted my own little analysis uh, in my office, looking at my last 25 canal plosties versus my last uh, 25 trabeculectomies in whom I have six months of follow-up. And I looked at it from the standpoint of pressure, IOP pre-imposed, I looked at the number of medications pre-imposed, and I looked at the um, number of visits involved. And um, the number of post-operative visits is, is substantially higher in trabeculectomy. Uh, in one patient went up to 14 visits in the first three months uh, because there's so much manipulation involved in getting a trabeculectomy to work from massage and laser suture lysis and uh, uh, manipulation and and a variety of things, you know, to get it to where you want it to be. Whereas with canalplasty, the surgery defines it. In in trabeculectomy, it's the post-operative care that defines success, whereas in canalplasty, it's the procedure that defines success. And that's, that would be, I think, a, a better goal to have in, in the glaucoma surgical arena. What is the duration of effect of canaloplasty? Well, we, we have the two-year data, which has been, again, is going to be published in the May issue of Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. We have some preliminary data in three years and a small number of patients that shows it continues to work. Um, you know, it would be wonderful to have five- and ten-year data, but we don't have it. I think, although, when we look at trabeculectomy at, at five years, the, um, you know, you see about half the patients have failed with trabeculectomy. So I think if we could be, if we could be at least that good, if we could have, you know, 60 or 70% success rate at five years, I think we'll compare very favorably to trabeculectomy. Rick, you touched on the learning curve with respect to this procedure. Let me ask you something slightly different. If... Uh, one of the listeners to this podcast wants to learn this procedure. How does he or she go about learning? What What are your pearls? Well, you know, the uh, company has instituted a, a fairly uh, detailed course uh, that includes a lab. Uh, it's a, a two-hour didactic course and then about a, about a two-hour lab. 
uh, in which you work on iBank eyes to pe- learn to pass the catheter and, and what to expect and some of the nuances of the procedure. Uh, and probably equally important is the fact that the company has surgical trainers that come out to your operating room and work with you in your first five cases. And so they'll basically kind of certify you in your own operating room under your own conditions. And so um, you get a lot of personal attention in the beginning of this procedure because a lot of people perceive this as a very challenging operation that they, they, they can't do. And, and the fact is that it's, uh, it's quite doable. Rick, you do some of these procedures, I assume, outside the context of this study. Right. What do you do in your own practice? Now, for whom do you recommend canaloplasty, and who gets TRABS? I think it's a good question, and and, and certainly um, uh, this procedure is really only indicated in patients with open-angle glaucoma and who has not had a previous trabeculectomy or significant scarring in the in the angle. Um, patients who have angle closure, who have a lot of scarring, who have some of the secondary glaucomas are better off having a trabeculectomy or perhaps a drainage device like a Barvelt or an Ahmed. And so, uh, you know, I tend to do this in patients who uh, are have an open angle, non not did have previous surgery. Uh, I, I I feel pretty feel comfortable. I can get the pressures in the in the you know low teens in the between the uh, you know 13 to 16 range, and uh, get them off most if not all their medications. Uh, you know, if they're scarring, then I would put a tube in. But uh, there's a lot of patients who are younger, who wear contact lenses, and who can't have a bleb, or patients who uh, high myopes, who are at risk of uh, maculopathy from mitomycin, uh, in which I think the canal plastic is a really, really good option for you. Uh, it avoids the bleb. Rick, do you do fewer lasers now? And the, the, the reason that I ask is, at least in the context of this study, patients who had undergone laser trabeculoplasty were not candidates for canaloplasty? Uh, Not necessarily. Is it not advisable to do this procedure in someone who's had, let's say, an SLT done before? Well, SLT is much less destructive to the angle than uh, ALT, and SLT probably would not be a contraindication, whereas ALT, particularly if you've had uh, two ALTs to a to a TM, then it really does cause problems. But SLT, I think you could do multiple times, um, and I don't think that would impact this procedure at all. Rick, is there anything that you'd like to add? Uh, well, just I think that the you know there's a there's a whole variety of new procedures that are being currently investigated. Uh, I think it's a it's a kind of a time of renaissance for the for the glaucoma patient and the glaucoma surgeon. Uh, I think we all have to look at these procedures critically, um, but I also think we have to support what these many many are venture capital funded companies are trying to do because I think in, unless we can you know push that frontier more, we're we're going to be stuck doing trabeculectomies for another 50 years, um, and I'm I really think that the time is ripe to uh, take advantage of this new technology and new new knowledge to uh, better serve our glaucoma patients. Rick Lewis, thank you so much. No problem. It's been, uh, it's been very interesting. Richard Lewis is the past president of the American Glaucoma Society and is in private practice in Sacramento, California. His paper, Canaloplasty, Circumferential Viscodilation and Tensioning of Schlem Canal Using a Flexible Microcatheter for the Treatment of Open-Angle Glaucoma in Adults, two-year interim clinical study results appears in the May 2009 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery.
ask questions of Dr. Lewis or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.